But before going straight into the reading, let me just give a few words of background so some of you have memories as poor as mine in terms of uh, history. The book of Daniel was probably written about 165 BC, by, but its anonymous author writes as if he were, the, the, as if the main character, Daniel, were living in Babylon 400 years earlier, during the reign of a king called Darius. At the time of writing, the Jews were under the rule of Antiochus, who, determined to spread Greek culture throughout Syria and Judah, imposed a strict ban on all distinctly, distinctively Jewish practices like circumcision, Sabbath observance, worship of Yahweh, and so on. Acutely conscious of this repression, the author relates various incidents in Daniel's life, all of which are intended to encourage Jews in their faith in Yahweh, who would protect them against dangers of all kinds. And here is one of the more memorable of those incidents. So the reading from Daniel chapter 6, starting at the... So the, so, the president, sorry? so the presidents and satraps, satraps were uh, governors, sat, the presidents and satraps conspired and came to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the councillors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that what, or whoever prays to anyone, human or divine, for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish the interdict and sign the document so that it cannot be changed. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, it cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the interdict. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which has windows in its upper room looking towards Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. The conspirators came and found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God. Then they approached the king and said concerning the interdict, O king, did you not sign an interdict that anyone who prays to anyone, divine or human, within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the den of lions? The king answered, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they responded to the king, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king or to the interdict you have signed, but he is saying his prayers three times a day. When the king heard the charge, he was very much distressed. He was determined to save Daniel, and until the sun went down, he made every effort to rescue him. Then the conspirators came to the king and said to him, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no interdict or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king gave the command and Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. 
the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you faithfully serve deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No food was brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions. When he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you faithfully serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no wrong. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king gave a command and those who had accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the den of lions, they, their children and their wives. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples and nations of every language throughout the whole world, may you have abundant prosperity. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, for he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. In the middle of the most recent lockdown, media headlines were reporting the news that a group of church leaders were taking the government to court. I don't know if you saw this story. Um, I'll pick it up as it was reported in The Guardian. They said, more than 100 Christian leaders have launched a legal challenge against the ban on communal worship in England under lockdown restrictions. They claim worship has been criminalised and the ban has, quote, inflicted a terrible human cost on congregations for whom collective worship is a core element of their religious life. The restrictions on public worship, the Guardian continues, uh, they argue breach Article 9 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which protects the right to freedom of religion. The claim for judicial review by the 122 church leaders from different traditions is being supported by the Christian Legal Centre, an arm of the conservative evangelical organisation Christian Concern. Well, I perhaps ought to admit that I often find Christian Concern quite useful. Because if I haven't quite worked out what I think about something, I can take a look at whether they've said anything about it. And if they have, I can be fairly sure that I'll think the exact opposite of whatever it is they've said. Whilst at a superficial level, it might be tempting to draw an analogy between Daniel's defiance of King Darius and the willful breaking of lockdown rules by some church leaders. I think this is to trivialise the question that the story raises for us, which is, 
the deep and profound question of religious liberty. The guidance related to Article 9 of the European Convention on Human Rights, as quoted by the uh, angry Christian leaders last week, is a long and detailed document. I looked it up and read some of it. It runs to 98 pages with huge levels of nuance and case law supporting it. But the headline paragraph, the article itself, is fairly short, so I'd like to share it with you now. It's, it's two points. One, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. This right includes freedom to change religion or belief uh, and freedom, either alone or in community with others and in public or private, to manifest religion or belief in worship, teaching, practice and observance. And then point two, freedom to manifest one's religion or beliefs shall be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society in the interests of public safety, for the protection of public order, health or morals, or for the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. Well, I think that point, too, puts Christian concern pretty much back in its box, given that we are in the middle of a pandemic and the restrictions are firmly in the area of protecting public health. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm as frustrated as the next person by some of the rules. For example, I simply can't work out why a choir would be allowed to sing in our church on a weekday evening without masks when we're not allowed to sing there on a Sunday with masks. However, this isn't religious persecution. It is, I suspect, incompetence on the part of the rule makers, which is different. And we'll be heading back into our buildings soon enough, thanks to the vaccine. And when we are, no one will be taking our names to intimidate us or threatening us as we make our way to worship. But until then, we can continue to meet for our worship services online, and we can continue living and speaking the values and convictions of our faith without let or hindrance. I do not think we are being persecuted at this time. So what I wonder are we to make of that Sunday school favourite, the story of Daniel in the lion's den? I remember reading this as a child, I don't remember the bit where um, all the families and children were thrown in and their bones were all broken, though. That I, I think maybe we missed that out of the children's Bible bit. Well, anyway, as always, it's worth setting the context. I'm grateful to John for giving us a short introduction to the context as part of the reading earlier. Um, to recap, last week, if you were here with us, we were um, with the story of Jeremiah. And uh, this was when Israel was on the cusp of occupation and exile and the Davidic monarchy was under threat. And in our reading today, we've moved on a few decades and we're now bang in the middle of the Babylonian exile. So the temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been conquered and the Jews, at least a significant number of them, have been taken from their homes into exile in Babylon. And this time of exile in Babylon is crucial for the development of Judaism and therefore for Christianity, because it's during the exile that most of the Jewish scriptures are written down. It's during this time of displacement that much of what we call the Old Testament comes into being as oral traditions are transcribed into written form. It's also the time when the Jews discover what it means to be Jewish without their land or temple as the focus of their faith. 
So by the time we get to the time of Jesus, although there is a restored Jewish state and a rebuilt temple, there are also Jewish communities in most major towns and cities throughout the Roman Empire, as the people of Israel flourish even when distanced from their homeland. The skills learned in exile stood the Jews in good stead to know how to be Jewish in the midst of Greek and Roman cities. But the story of Daniel wasn't written down in the exile. It's a story, as John said, from much later in the Jewish story. It finds its origins in the time of the Maccabean revolt in 165 BC. In this way, the book of Daniel is probably the most recent of the Old Testament books to be written. To put it in context, Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church is older than the number of years between Jesus' birth and the book of Daniel being written. It might be describing events from the 6th century BC, but it was written in the mid-2nd century. And of course, it's a fictional story. I do hate to break it to you, but Daniel is a character, not a historical person. Similar to the modern genre of historical novel, the context is historical, the exile happened, but the characters who inhabit this text are fictionalised. So why does the book of Daniel exist? Why was it written? What's it trying to say? Well, the Maccabean revolt was a Jewish rebellion that took place between 167 and 160 BC. And it was a, an uprising against the Seleucid Empire. If you've not heard of them, they were one of the culturally Greek empires that kind of took over segments of the Greek Empire after the fall of Alexander the Great's, uh, you know, great homogenous empire, when that broke apart into different factions, the Seleucids took over one part of it. So they're kind of Greek, they're a Greek fragment empire. And the book of Maccabees in the Apocrypha is set in this time of the Maccabean revolt. In addition to giving us the origins of the Jewish festival Hanukkah, it also tells us about a man called Mattathias and his sons, Judas, Jonathan and Simon. So the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes captured Jerusalem, killed a lot of Jews and removed the sacred objects from the temple. He then passed laws to suppress the public observance of the Jewish faith. He desecrated the temple by establishing pagan rituals in the Holy of Holies, including sacrificing an unclean animal on the altar. And he forbade the rite of circumcision and made it illegal on pain of death to possess the Jewish scriptures. And in the face of this persecution, Mattathias and his sons initiated an armed revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And despite heavy losses, they had some success. They retook the temple, reconsecrated it for Jewish worship and instituted the festival of Hanukkah in celebration. Eventually, the brothers did a deal with the rising Roman Empire to secure Roman support in ousting the Seleucids. And both Jonathan and Simon Maccabeus end up serving as high priest in the temple. In Jewish folklore, this went down as a major victory and the faithful Jewish brothers, you know, overthrew this mighty imperial enemy. It also set the scene for the Roman occupation of Israel, which, of course, then gives us the context for the life of Jesus 
a century and a half later. So this Maccabean revolt is really the main period of transition that leads to the worlds that we're perhaps more familiar with in terms of the first century and the birth of Jesus. And the time of the Maccabean revolt was also the time when the book of Daniel was written. Set, as we have heard, in the former time of the exile, when Israel was under threat from the evil empire of the Babylonians. And sure enough, in the story, the king, King Darius of Persia, passes a law requiring people to worship him and him alone on pain of death. So what is the hero, faithful Daniel, to do? Should he worship Darius or remain faithful to his god? Should he take up arms against the oppressive king or should he engage in non-violent civil disobedience? All these, of course, these questions that the book of Daniel is exploring are the questions facing Jews at the time of the Maccabean revolt. The story of Daniel explores what non-violent resistance looks like at a time when the populist solution headed by the Maccabean family um, was armed revolt. So Daniel, in the story, quietly, faithfully places his trust in God and continues to worship according to his traditions in defiance of King Darius's orders. And when the soldiers turn up to take him to his place of execution, he isn't waiting for them with a sword in his hand, but rather he goes quietly, faithfully, trusting in God. And the outcome, as we all know, is that Daniel's faithfulness is rewarded, the king converts, and decrees that everyone must now worship Daniel's God and for good measure the lions still get their dinner as those who had conspired for Daniel's death become the victims of their own dastardly plan along with their wives and children. And so everyone apart from them lives happily ever after. So can you see what's going on here? This story is proposing a non-violent alternative to the armed resistance of Mattathias and his sons, as we find it in the book of Maccabees. And what you might well ask, has all this got to do with Advent? Well, the clue is in the hymn we just heard. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Just as the time of the Maccabean revolt could be understood in terms of the exile. So too can the world that awaits the coming of Christ be understood as a world of lonely exile. Advent is the season of waiting for the coming of the Christ child, the moment when God is made known to humans. And sure enough, in the gospel stories of the birth of Jesus, there is of course a wicked king, it's not Darius, not even the, Mac the Seleucids. This time it's Herod the Great, who married the great, great, great granddaughter of Simon Maccabeus. And there is an evil empire. This time it's not the Babylonians or the Seleucids, it's the Romans propping up the regime of Herod. You can see how these themes repeat down the generations. And the story of Daniel raises its questions for the life of Jesus, who comes as God made flesh to challenge all the powers and principalities of evil in the world. 
we see it playing out in the stories of Jesus' life, as those around him keep tending towards armed struggle against the oppressor. And Jesus has to continually resist violence as the solution to the world's problems, as he journeys towards his own place of violence on the cross. And I think as we gather today on the first Sunday in Advent, this ancient story poses its challenge to us too. The image of exile is often used as a way of thinking about how Christians live in the world. Our home is the kingdom of heaven, but for now we are exiled to the kingdom of this world. And the question before us is how then shall we live? And the choice before us is the same as it was before Daniel. And it's the same as it was for the Jews of the Maccabean period. And it's the same as it was for those who lived alongside Jesus. Will we seek through our actions to proactively assert our rights, to do battle at every turn with those who would oppose or threaten our faith traditions? If so, we are closer to the Maccabeans than we might like to admit. Or will we seek, as Daniel did, to bear faithful and steadfast witness to God, facing the consequences of our actions with peaceful courage, if necessary? We may not have anyone telling us that our faith is illegal or forbidding us from worshipping our God. And it seems to me that to try and cast the requirements of lockdown as if they were such a restriction is just a smokescreen for the kind of zealous assertivism that seeks to create a narrative of victimhood as a spur to antagonism. However, there are powers at work in our world that seek to take for themselves that which should only be given to God. The ideologies of consumerism and militarism are insidious, violent and all-embracing. And we are called to resist, to live out in our lives the fact that our allegiance is to another God. And there is a cost to living out the allegiance to God that we have. There is a cost to going against the prevailing ideology of the world, which is never an easy thing to do. So as the light at the end of the pandemic tunnel nears and our time of exile from our buildings draws to a close, I wonder if we can hear this Advent, the challenge to live in the hope that the realities of our world as we experience it do not get to define the future. Can we hear from Daniel this Advent, the challenge to live with integrity in this moment, resisting all those forces and demands that press upon us and seek to make us compromise our beliefs. Uh, Simon, thank you for that. There is a lot there for us to uh, think on and reflect uh, about. Uh, we're going to have a few moments of silence and then I'll invite the panellists to come back uh, to take part in our discussion. And kind of remind folks, there's the chat function if uh, anybody has any questions or thoughts or responses that are stirred up uh, by what Simon has shared. Uh, but we'll have, um, we'll have a few moments silence before we bring back the panel. And can I invite the panelists now to unmute and to turn on their videos and uh, we'll gather for uh, some reflections. Lovely, thank you. So we have John and Hazel, we have Roseanne, we have Simon, we have Ian, Duncan and Yudoka. Yudoka, are you there? Yes. <laughs> Great, thank you. 
it feels a bit like Eurovision calling in with the points from different, different countries. So can I ask the panel any immediate uh, thoughts or reflections or any responses to what uh, Simon shared? I'll jump in and say that I thought Simon's address was very good. I really enjoyed it. It seems wrong to try to summarize it, but in a sense it is. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> that he very carefully rehearses or explains the situation there and there are indeed strong parallels with now, but I, I enjoyed it very much. Second that. Uh, yeah, it's funny that these themes come up again and again, don't they, about um, displaced people and the loneliness, but actually uh, the importance of uh, faith and belief and, and faithfulness um, and the hope that it can give us all, um, that it just comes up again and again through different stories and different points um, in history and then different points in our own lives. Thank you, Rosanna. Can yeah. I just say something as well? The first thing I thought when I read this passage was of Daniel's great faith and he was prepared to trust in God, whether he was saved from the lions or not. And that took me to countries where you don't have religious freedom. And they, people there, um, trust in God and continue to worship, whether openly or underground churches. And that took me on even more to what would I do or you do if you were persecuted and your faith was tested? Would you have the courage of Daniel or anybody else in other countries? Thank you, Hazel. Those are uh, good questions and big and deep thoughts. And, and thank you for the honesty of, of sharing them too. The, uh, the idea of a non-violent response to the threat of violence and oppression is, um, uh, is, is interesting and challenging. The idea of bearing faithful witness to God, irrespective of our circumstances, is, um, <coughs> is challenging. Mm. I um, maybe just have a few thoughts. I, I spent quite a few years in the Mennonite church. Um, I don't know if anyone knows much about the Mennonites, but they're characterized in, in the Reformation, they, they protested about the, um, the fact that uh, church and government were pretty well one. Um, Christendom was a problem. Um, and that in order to follow Jesus faithfully, they took the road of um, a kind of nonviolent resistance, more or less. <laughs> there are instances of them making a few mistakes, but I think that's the road that we're called to follow. I think rather than looking to retain power, I think that's a real challenge. And I think um, Simon's alluded to that in the talk about how as Christians, very often we want to hold on to the privileges and rights that have accrued over centuries of Christendom. Um, and I think the Mennonites would question that whole kind of settlement really of, of Christendom where, you know, the, the church becomes the center of power pretty well. And, and how problematic that is. Uh, because I think Advent, we. We, you know, we're looking at the coming of, of Jesus, who is, we are to follow him. And he was the one who 
um, if we look in Philippians, you know, he, um, what does it say? You know, he, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, um, being made in human likeness, and and, um, and being found in human, uh, in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. And that's a very different kind of um, trajectory to find ourselves on than, um, in a way, the kind of confused trajectory we find ourselves in well, when we have privilege. So it's a very hard one, that, because I'm not suggesting that, you know, we should just sort of dismiss the privileges that we've had, um, you know, as a Christian. Well, when, when, I don't think we're a Christian country, but, you know, in the past we could say that. But, uh, you know, and I think what Time's touched on is really very helpful, though, because, um, yeah, and it's characterised by a lot of what you see in the United States, I think, the cultural war there. Um, so how do we do that? It's, it's a massive question. It's how, how do we let go? Um, as Jesus did, you know, how do we pour ourselves out? Um, so, you know, like we receive from God, we, um, you know, we see grace and, uh, and it's about letting go in a way and, and continuing that pouring out in ourselves. So I, it, I, I suppose the thousand dollar question, whatever the word is, is, is how that works out in our lives. And I think that's a big, big one. And maybe that's our big challenge now as we are on the margins, I, I would suggest as Christians. As to how we do that. Um, I think I think the sermon was really interesting and really brilliant. I, I kind of wrote some notes. I I think that um, persecution is uh, an idiom that is used a lot um, in churches, and especially growing up, I was um, uh, there was lots of talk of Christians being persecuted, and I'm not necessarily sure to the extent that's true in the UK. Um, and Hazel, your point about um, having solidarity and having a sense of like um recognizing the um harms that christians in other countries are going through to exercise their freedom of religion i think for christians within this context and living in a quite a privileged state having the church of england be the state religion um and being um, i'd argue actually quite at the center of public life our duty isn't to necessarily con construct quantities of, of us being oppressed based on um quite common sense COVID laws, but actually to show solidarity with people who are being persecuted um, within our society. That like, might be refugees um, and people might have been aware of the um, attempted deportations that are coming up and pe people who have been victimized by the RINRA scandal. Um, but it can also be people who are victims of state power in many other different registers. And it's for us to think about how, as Christians, we can support them. And as you were saying, Ian, let go of our privilege and um, actually stand besides people who are facing that kind of issue in the current day. Thank you, Yudoka. Uh, I'm conscious that the time is moving on with some interesting comments in the chat there from Amy and uh, from Peter. And um, uh, Duncan, have you anything you'd like to contribute, or should we move on? I was, I was going to say. I mean, as everybody's picked up on, this is a story about religious freedom, but I think it can also be a story which speaks to us about other other forms of freedom. I mean, because I've been thinking a lot about African American spirituals, one of them absolutely jumped to my mind when I was hearing the story. Who lock, who lock the lion? Who lock the lion's jaw? God lock, God lock, God lock the lion's jaw. And, you know, this is a, a story about, um, you know, God the deliverer, delivering 
uh, justice for the weak in the face of the strong. And I mean, I'm sure that the slaves had in mind how he would paralyze, how God would paralyze the power of their white masters. But, you know, there's another song, which is also from that era, which says, my Lord deliver Daniel, why can't he deliver me? So I think that it's actually a cry for justice. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a powerful image that sticks with us over the centuries. Yeah. I, I'm conscious, uh, again, I, mean, I think of the, the children's songs that, that I learned. I see Frank has mentioned Dare to Be a Daniel, which was a, a song that I was raised on. Daniel was a man of prayer daily. He prayed three times. And these were children's stories, but actually, honestly, so much more, so much more. Um, I'm conscious, too, that in a sense, we are in our own time of exile, being scattered. And I'm curious, uh, and not for a response, just as to what narratives will emerge from our own times of being scattered and being unable to uh, physically meet together because of the whole COVID pandemic. So thank you very much for the panelists and for people writing uh, chat as well. And um, just because of time, um, we need to wrap up and there's a lot going on today. And as we come to pray this morning at the beginning of Advent, I'd like to just share a few words from Diedrich Bonhoeffer on his understanding of Advent um, before we go into prayer. And then when we start the, um, the prayers, um, Please, if you, um, uh, I invite you to, um, following my entonement of In Your Mercy after each prayer, if you could say, hear our prayer. So, so Bonhoeffer's words, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are, are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. God of hope, ground of our being, we thank you that it is your very nature to pour yourself out in love. At the beginning of Advent, we wait expectantly for your love to be revealed in the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. Just as Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, became a servant, so too may we as his followers Take the same path, wherever it may lead us. Transform us, we pray, so that through us, as your followers, change may come into the world. In your mercy. God of hope, we pray for our world this Advent. We thank you for the progress in the development of vaccines to combat COVID. We ask for justice and for the fair distribution of vaccines in the coming months to all nations. We cry out to you for those who are suffering as a result of the pandemic. Whether through the loss of loved ones, illness, the loss of likelihoods, livelihoods, and employment and mental illness. And we pray particularly for the effects in the most vulnerable around us, the elderly, those in prison, the homeless, refugees, the unemployed, in your mercy. God of hope, we pray for peace in a world destabilized by the pandemic. 
by inequality, by the climate emergency, by conflict and rivalries between nations and ethnic groups. We pray for peace in Ethiopia, in the conflict in Tigray, and for the ongoing conflicts happening in so many parts of the world that are so often forgotten about over time, in the Yemen, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We pray for a safe and orderly transfer of power following the US election, and that you would help President Biden and his incoming administration to be peacemakers, and that they will reach out across the political divide. In your mercy. God of hope, we pray for our nation as we emerge from the pandemic. We ask that our government would embrace policies of peace and justice. We pray particularly that the cuts to the UK's overseas aid budget would be reversed. We pray for justice for those caught in the hostile environment created by government policy on immigration, for asylum seekers, by those affected by the Windrush scandal. We pray for Sheikh, our own friend in Bloomsbury, as he awaits further legal proceedings in terms of his application for asylum. Um, we thank you for Fatima and Amina as they settle into life in the UK. We pray for the language learning and integration into life here. We pray for the negotiations between the UK, UK government and the European Union on a trade deal. And pray for consensus and the building of trust as the UK faces this new phase in its future. In your mercy, God of hope, we pray for our church in this time of COVID as we face an uncertain future. Help us to stay close to one another, even while we are separated. We pray for all those in leadership in the church and we thank you for their faithful service. Help us all to commit to serving you in whatever way we can at this time. Thank you for the many initiatives that you have led Bloomsbury uh, into over many years. I'll work with the homeless. For the London citizens and our involvement um, with other churches in that in Westminster. For London Prisons Mission and our support for their work in prisons. For those who offer pastoral care to the community of Bloomsbury. Finally, we pray for those who are part of our fellowship. For Bill and Jackie, um, as Bill's health continues to fluctuate. For Peter's mother, who continues to struggle with her health and has been in and out of hospital. We pray for her and Peter. And a moment of quiet as we pray for those who have not been mentioned, but who are in our hearts. Those who are known to us personally. In your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. May the love of Jesus Christ bring us wholeness. The grace of God the Father grant us peace. The breath of the Holy Spirit instill passion. And the unity between them give us strength for this and every day. Amen. Amen.